Hello, welcome to the new Dalham History Podcast. Along the way, there'll always be games and jokes, but mainly this is serious history. Well, as serious as me and Gribbing get. Welcome to the new Dalham History Podcast, episode 13. Yeah, ooh. I'm lucky for some. But it's Valentine's Day. Yay! So we're going to do Hitler. Yay! <laughs> be mine, be mine. <laughs> we are going to look into why 1923 was a particularly stressful year for the Weimar Republic. <laughs> Stress. Stress. Let's see what I did Stressful. there. Stressful. Uh, Brill. Okay, right. yeah. Now, if you are listening to these episodes in order, you'll realise that 1923 is the year that the film of the Gunpowder Plot was released. That's not what we're talking about. No. We are talking about the year 1923 in Weimar, Germany, and the threats to Weimar that were posed in that year. Yeah. So it all kicks off in January 1923. How handy is that if you're a history student studying the topic? So in January 1923, um, Germany falls behind with their reparation payments um, that they have to pay after the Treaty of Versailles. To Belgium and France, isn't it? Yeah, um, in order to rebuild after the First World War. They can't pay them, so they fall behind on their payments and then France aren't particularly pleased by this. No, because they need to pay back their war debts to America using the money that Germany's paying them to rebuild the country. It's all very, I don't know down the pub, working class with ferrets. I've borrowed money from you to pay back to the guy across the table. It's, it's <laughs> You can feel the tension building. But France have a, an ace up their sleeve, don't they? Because the Treaty of Versailles gives them carte blanche, should Germany fall behind with their payments, to take the value in other ways. Yeah, so instead of just sort of telling Germany off and waiting for the money, uh, France very actively uh, invade the Ruhr area of Germany, which includes lots of industrial um, land and lots of production areas. So they seize the means of production, basically. It's the heart of German industry, but it's also the heart of the Rhineland. And again, the Treaty of Versailles made this easier for Belgium and France because the Treaty of Versailles says Germany's not allowed to have soldiers in the Rhineland. So when the French and Belgian armies come in... There's no resistance. There's not allowed to be resistance, or at least not military resistance. Yeah. Um, what they what they try to do is they try to challenge this invasion in a different way. So the workers in the Ruhr um, decide to go on strike. It's passive resistance. Kids, you're good at this. That's when you refuse <laughs> to work. Um, they even Some of them even damaged factory machines or flooded mines to cause problems for the French. Um, and some of the German workers were actually shot by French mm. soldiers. Um it's a massive, a huge disaster for Germany, um, as well as having French soldiers in the Ruhr taking German goods in order to pay the mm. reparation payments. They had their workers causing problems and Germany still had to pay their wages. It's good in some ways in that it unites German people together, but they don't have a solution, or at least not a financially sensible solution. The, the government backs the strikers, doesn't it? Yeah, the workers who are on strike are sort of regarded as heroes for resisting the French and, you know, making a stand. Um, but as a result, the Weimar Republic has to print more money to pay their wages. So if you were answering a question on this, you've got negatives in that they've lost land. You've got positives in that it brings Germany together, but you've got negatives in that it leads to another event. Hyperinflation. Yeah, money spiralled out of control and became worthless at a faster and faster speed. Um, 
So, for instance, in July 1914, one pound was worth 20 marks, but in November 1923, one pound was worth, I don't even know how many zeros that is, 1.6 trillion marks? Wow. I mean, if we're doing it in terms of goods, uh, at the end of the First World War, a loaf of bread cost 60 pfennigs. That's 0.6 German marks, Deutsch marks. By January 1923, so at the start of the um, invasion... It's 250 marks, so already the currency yeah. has begun to spiral, but the pain of the striking workers leads to hyperinflation. It's 1.5 million marks for a loaf of bread. Whew. So if you think of that in English money, that's gone from 60p for a loaf of bread to 1.5 million pounds. That's even more expensive than buying your bread at Marks and Spencer's. <laughs> I've heard that that is waitress pricing. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so, in terms of everyday life, workers, they're being paid twice a day. There's the whole wheelbarrow thing. Um, if you're on a fixed income, it's disastrous because um, they can't increase your pay. Uh, people's life savings are also wiped out um, because uh, any money in the bank immediately oh, becomes worthless. Old people. Yeah. And, um, yeah, people found themselves unable to afford basic necessities. And people start, like, burning the money instead of trying to pay for, for coal or yeah. fuel. It causes anger at the government for causing this problem, even though at first they were happy that they were supporting the strikers. It also creates a lot of aggression towards foreigners. So foreigners, obviously, their currency maintains its value and they live like kings in Germany, which makes Germans feel doubly hard done by. Yeah, they're not the only people that um, did well out of hyperinflation. So you've got foreigners with foreign currency worth a fortune, but you've also got businessmen who had borrowed money from the banks. So um, debt is now worth less because money is worth less. Um, There are also food shortages, so food became more expensive, which was good for farmers who made more money. Mm. So hyperinflation, terrible for the majority of the population, but a small few um, did make some good profits out of it. If you're a foreign farmer with lots of debt, wow, what a year. <laughs> but that's not the big event, and the big event is one that everyone forgets. If you get a question on 1923, most of you remember hyperinflation. Most of you can remember what caused hyperinflation, but you forget what happens in November when hyperinflation is hitting its peak before Strasserman fixes the currency and introduces the rent and mark, and we've done Strasserman in a previous episode. You get... Somebody seizing their, well, what they think is their opportunity to make Germany great again. Yeah, and in these kinds of situations, so drastic economic downturn, people turn to extreme parties, which we see in 1929 after the Wall Street crash. That's when Hitler and the Nazis really see their big push. So, Did, did you say 1929 or did you say 2016? I, I got confused. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Yeah, so 1923, it's Hitler's time to shine. Um, He's looked at some of the previous attempted putches or rebellions, revolutions. Uh, In 1919, the communists had tried to take control with the Spartacist uprising. You'd had the uh, Fry Corps uh, attempting to seize power. The Cap Putsch. Yeah, led by Wolfgang Cap. Wolfgang Cap. Now it's Hitler's turn, three years later, to try and seize the state of Bavaria. So, 
He chooses Bavaria because it's in the south of Germany, which is traditionally a bit more conservative, a bit more right wing. He thinks he's got a good base of support there. So instead of trying to seize Berlin, like the other uprisings did, um, he goes a little bit safer and goes for Munich. It's like Mussolini. He models himself in the early years on the fascist party in Italy. Mussolini started in the rural nationalist areas and made his march to Rome. Hitler thinks, I'll do the same. Start in Bavaria, spread towards Berlin. Yeah, he thinks that he'll be successful because the SA and the Nazi party had grown quite large, so he had quite a lot of support. Um, he was also supported by a sort of very famous army commander, General Ludendorff, so he expected the army to support him as well, um, you know. Uh, mm. And he also uses the timing of this because of hyperinflation Um Hitler expected the German people to support him as well because they were so unhappy with the government at the time. Yeah, it's sort of that um, snowball effect of you've got the party uniting, you've got the right-wing parties uniting, you've got the right-wing parties and the army uniting, therefore the people will come on board next. Yeah, absolutely. And he does really believe that once he controls Bavaria that he could take control of Berlin and the whole of Germany and then remove all the Weimar politicians and replace them with his own Nazi government. Not necessarily him. I don't think he's seen himself as definitely the leader yet, no. but he thinks that it's time to get rid of democracy. And it all starts on the 8th of November. Yes. Um, and Hitler, with 600 Nazis, marched into a beer hall in Munich, which is why it's also known as the Beer Hall Putsch. Burgerbrow Beer Hall. <laughs> um, and the people at the meeting are Gustav von Kahr, the head of the Bavarian government, Otto von Lossau, the head of the army, and Hans von Seisser, the head of the police. Hitler hadn't been invited, had he? Uh, they no. were having a meeting to discuss forming a coalition and they'd left Hitler out because he was too right-wing <laughs> for the right-wing meeting. Uh, which is proven by the next point. Uh, so Hitler enters the meeting and threatens them with a gun until they agree to support him. It's one way of getting people on side. Yeah. Um, however, for some reason, the Nazis let these three men leave the building um, and the next day, Lossau and Seisser change their minds and decide to organise soldiers and police to stop Hitler. Yeah, the Nazi party think once they've got this agreement, that that's enough, that they won't go back on their word. They start making plans for the seizure of the city when really they should have just kept everyone together to make sure that they're committed to the to the movement. Yeah, they decide to carry on with the putsch. They march through Munich on the 9th of November and take over the government. But police with guns blocked the roads. Shots were fired and 16 Nazis and four police were killed. It's quite awkward, isn't it? The German army has secretly supplied them with weapons, 2,000 yeah. rifles, yeah. but the rifles don't have firing pins. So they are marching through the streets, looking pretty menacing, but with no way of... Actually enforcing the putsch. Yeah. Um, so the, the result of the putsch is that the Nazis sort of, like, run away. <laughs> um, Hitler goes into hiding but is arrested two days later and the Nazi party are banned by the government. Yeah. Goering, he seriously wounds himself. This is when Goering starts to go a bit Henry VIII and bulks out. Chunk out. <laughs> yeah. He, he had been, like, this really slim Premier League-style physique um, air pilot in the Luftwaffe and then from this point on he just keeps eating like an athlete but... Not really exercising. Hitler hurts his shoulder, doesn't he? Claims that he's yeah. taken a bullet for the team. In reality, he's tripped running away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the Munich Putsch is still important, even though on the surface it looks like a massive failure for the Nazis. I mean, the leader in Hitler is arrested. Um, the party itself is banned in Germany. I mean, it couldn't really get much worse. Um, however, 
Um, Hitler's put on trial for treason in February 1924. Mm. He's found guilty and sent to prison for five years, which is an extremely lenient sentence anyway when you think it's treason. Think crime and punishment, kids. Treason is punishable by death. That was still the case in Weimar Germany. If it was a serious threat to the... The nation, he could have been executed. Yeah, this was the lowest sentence that they could have given him and shows, really, that the judges agreed with some of Hitler's ideas about the Weimar Republic. The the others are let off as well, pretty much, aren't they? Yeah. People like Ludendorff just walk away from this scot-free. He's out in nine months. Yeah, he only serves nine months of his sentence. And he's put up in the nicest prison cell, (sighs) given access to a writer to help him with putting together Mein Kampf. He gets as many visitors as he wanted. Uh, Yeah, he basically lives in relative luxury. But this changes the Nazi Party's approach, and Mm. I'm sure that's an episode for another time. But in terms of 1923, this is what brings Germany back together again. I think there is this feeling of, right, we need to find a solution to the problem. Stresserman is listened to in the fact that they should make the payment and end the passive resistance, and suddenly everything calms down again. Yeah, and this is the sort of beginning of the Nazi wilderness years where mm. when Stresemann's in power between 1924 and 29, they're pretty much non-existent, a non-threat, um, just sort of like hanging around in the background waiting for another opportunity. Yeah. So 1923, there's plenty to talk about. And the great thing is, if you remember those events, you know the year that they happened in. In your answers, you, you need to use names and dates. 23 is a good one. Yeah, just remember that the invasion of the Ruhr comes first, Mm -hmm. then hyperinflation, uh, not um, hyperinflation, and then they can't pay their reparations. It's the failure to pay reparations that starts the whole thing off. And let's not even open the can of worms about the fact that the Great Depression is not the same as hyperinflation. In fact, if anything, it's the opposite because the currency deflates during the Great Depression. Hyperinflation in 1923 before the Nazis are in power, before the Wall Street crash, 10 years before the Nazis come to power. Easy to remember. Am I? Are you ready, Gribbs? I'm ready. Who am I? Okay. A sequence of facts. Can you work out who I am? So, this person was born on the 9th of April, 1865, near Pilsen in Prussia, which is now in Poland. Um, was a serving member of the army at the age of 18. Um, When war broke out in 1914, they were made quartermaster general in von Berlo's second army. But then when the Russians looked like they might do well in 1914, they were promoted to serve under Paul von Hindenburg. Is it Ludendorff? It is Ludendorff! Oh, well done, Gribbs. So, uh, if I was to continue, you got it quite early on. Um... Hindenburg and Ludendorff work on mobilising the German army to make total warfare. Uh, Prior to that, I didn't mention it, but he was also the guy in charge of revising the Schlieffen plan, which had worked out how Germany was to attack France and Russia uh, at the same time. Yeah. Didn't really work. Takes the hit on that one. Um, He was the guy who launched the uh, Western uh, offensive in the final days of the war before the Americans arrived. Nearly swung the the balance of power for Germany, but again, nearly. He's the one who basically claims that he'd been deprived of victory by a stab in the back. He's the guy who creates Mm. the stab in the back myth. And... He is the army general who gives Hitler the connections for the Munich Putsch. The ma- I have read theories that actually Ludendorff is far more influential within the early Nazi party than he's let on. Mm. And 
actually he steps back after 1928 into relative obscurity but he was the one who kept the party going he was the one who planned the putsch far more than hitler um and he, he uses hitler as the fall guy yeah because that makes sense because he's a military sort of tactician so you know hitler wouldn't have the experience to come up with the ideas of the munich putsch really he arranges the weapons yeah. he finds out about the meeting that's taking place between the right wing uh leaders he he manipulates everything from the background but then becomes a victim of his own a success when Hitler returns to the party, um, he's seen as the guy who organised it all because he didn't want the credit, and he ends up he dies, bless him, he falls out with the Nazis and retires. I am using air quotes, kids. Um, and he dies in 1937, just before Christmas. Oh, never sees the Second World War. Probably a good thing. I don't know, as an ex general, I think he'd have had an interest, especially when the Nazis do well at first. Yeah, he'd have probably enjoyed that. Technique time. <laughs> We're going to do some technique on the hardest question on the all four papers. Well, three papers, four topics. I'd argue it's the hardest question at A-level as well. Yeah, it's really, it's really paper mean. one's tricky one in section C. Yeah. The interpretations question is it's the pinnacle of historical skill. Yeah. And it's also knowing that interpretations are different from sources. Yes, they really are. You can call them extracts if you want, but at the end of the day, an interpretation is a historian's view of people or events. And what you need to do is you have to explain why they don't always agree. Yeah. So this question has this question has three sections. The first section says, um, what is the difference between interpretation one and two? So there you have to identify the main arguments in each interpretation and say what they are saying differently. So if one says, you know, 1923 was a terrible year because of the Treaty of Versailles and its consequences, and one says the 1923 was a terrible year because the Nazis uh, tried to attack the government. There you've got two separate arguments about why 1923 was a different year. Exactly. And it is, it's just stating the flipping obvious. Yeah, it may be that you've got one that's saying, oh, 1923 was great because farm food prices went up. 1923 was terrible because pensioners' uh, money was wiped out. State what the big difference is, but also provide a quote Quotes. from each interpretation. Quotes, quotes, quotes. It's worth four marks. Point out the difference, quote from each one, you've got four marks. Bob's your uncle. And then there's the other half of this kind of mini question. It comes in four parts, question three, but these two centre ones, B and C, are so closely linked, it's unbelievable. Yeah, the next one says, why are they different? So why might historians have different interpretations of things? Well... The most obvious one is that they've looked at different information, okay? So in order to come to their interpretation, their opinion, they will have looked at sources. So if they've got different opinions, therefore they've looked at different sources. And it tends to be, up until now, whenever the GCSEs have come out, the sources from part A are on the same topic as B and C. And you can see that one of the sources is similar to an interpretation, and the other one matches the other interpretation. So you can say the historians have looked at different sources. For example, interpretation two has looked at a source like source B, whereas interpretation one... Has just, looked at a source yeah. like source C. Yeah, exactly. So it's that straightforward. And we're not saying that you use a stock answer, but it should work. If it doesn't work, say that they have a different focus. 
source, uh, sorry, interpretation one is focused on political events, whereas interpretation two is focused on economic events. Interpretation one is focused on the uh, effects on people, whereas interpretation two is focusing on the effect on the government. Say why they're different. It's why. Why? The question says why. <laughs> uh, the last part of this question is, how far do you agree with interpretation one or two, whichever one they give you, um, for an inquiry into, and then they'll give you an inquiry. So I um, wish you could see the gestures that we're both doing there to, <laughs> to express the bit we're not saying, because we don't know what that bit will be. Yeah, so in order to answer this question, you need to establish what the main argument of the interpretation is first. Which you've done in part B. Yeah. So you start your answer with, the main argument of interpretation one is lay it out, Okay. Then in your um, main body of your sort of essay question, you need to argue for and against that opinion mm -hmm. in the in the interpretation. So you need to say, well, yes, I agree with interpretation one because it says um, this. this. And from my own knowledge, I know that this. And then, however, I can see the argument of interpretation two because you have to use both, both interpretations. interpretations. So then you say how the other interpretation has a strong argument as well. Back it up with some more knowledge before reaching a judgment. I would go for another paragraph to sort of... Swing it. ...bulk up your judgment. Hmm. So whichever one you agree with more, write another paragraph that sort of Which picks out maybe a little bit more, a different point from the interpretation, hmm. a bit more own knowledge, and then you have to come to an overall conclusion judgment. How far do you agree? So the same as your statement questions that you get on paper one and paper two, you have to say, I... Partially agree, somewhat agree, completely agree, you know, get an adverb in there. Yeah, I, I agree with the statement in relation to, and, and then pick a group in society, or uh, that that statement certainly applies in this year, but not uh, to the period as a whole. For some of you, there's also that whole thing about convey, mm. which of the interpretations conveys its argument more strongly. So talk about which one provides more evidence or discuss which one uses emotive language, whereas which one's more clinical. Or which one's a more academic interpretation, maybe, you mm. know, that you that you can base your information on. Yeah, but just which interpretation, as a, a, a historian, you find most uh, appealing? Which, which one's the better one? Yeah, yeah. Where else can I go? So, where else can you go? Uh, well, to start with, you've got the obvious one, um, the docudrama, would you call mm -hmm. it? Hitler, The Rise of Evil, with uh, Robert Carlyle as Hitler. And Wolverine's brother. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's got Phoenix in it as well. There's plenty of X-Men people in that. <laughs> Coincidence. Mm. Um, but there's um, that's a sort of series um so there will be an episode that focuses on 1923 and the issues that yeah um netflix they've got that show about the circle of evil oh yeah that, that's that got a good early episode which talks about the beginnings of the party up until about 1928 i think and then mm. it talks about the um conference bamberg conference mm. so that first episode really good for setting the scene um british pathé got quite a lot of clips from Germany in this period. So if you're wanting to watch actual footage of the invasion of the Ruhr and hyperinflation and the effects, uh, all their stuff's free to watch online. So just britishpathé.com. 
and, and you can watch silent footage of like Germans being kicked by French soldiers. <laughs> oh yay! <laughs> <laughs> um, um, what else? You've got all the usual places, BBC Bite Size. I've actually got quite a lot of stuff on for the Nazi Germany because mm-hmm. um, most exam boards cover some aspect of it. So you can check out Bite Size. Um, anything else? Um, obviously, listen back to our podcast episode about Gustav Strissmann as well. Mm. Where would we be without some Nazi jokes to finish off? Inappropriate. I don't know. Uh, well, we've got... We've got a, a um, joke today that's come from a film yeah. that's called Operation Finale. Not quite linked to your um, uh, GCSE, but quite interesting if you want to see like the follow-up Big after picture. the Nazis. Because um, lots of them escaped to Argentina, mm. um, organised through sort of networks with the Catholic Church and the fascist government in South America. Um, and this is told by a leading Nazi in the film. So, here we go, kids. How do you be the perfect Nazi? Well, how do you be the perfect Nazi? You have to be as tall as Goebbels, as slim as Goering, and as blonde as Hitler. (laughs) (laughs) Like it. I like it. Not sure mine's as good, but still. A poster for the Winter Assistance Organisation reads, No one should be allowed to go hungry or suffer from the cold. A labourer says to a co-worker, So... Now we're not even allowed to do that. <laughs> oh, well, we hope that you have a wonderful Valentine's um, and you find somebody to love you as much as Hitler loved... Putches. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's goodbye from her. Goodbye from him. Bye! Bye. <laughs>